0: The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Eli Estrin now presents his lecture, When Caregivers and Care Recipients Clash. Good morning, good morning. My name is uh, Rabbi Eliestrin, or Chaplain Eliestrin. I'm a United States Air Force Reserve Chaplain, stationed at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa. And I live here in North Miami Beach. My full-time work is actually with the Aleph Institute, and my responsibility is Jews in the United States military. So it's a broader responsibility. What was that? A bit down? Is that better? So it's a broader responsibility in terms of taking care of Jews, not just at my base, at McDill Air Force Base, but in general um, across the world, making sure that Jews in Iraq, serving in Iraq, have Seder plates, Lulavim and Etrogim. You might not realize that uh, Kuwait, for example, doesn't grow schach. So, so oftentimes we have to send them a sukkah and the schach along with, because you just don't have that many trees there. So small things like that. So that's, that's, that, all those things are part of my broader responsibility. And today, we're going to mix a couple of the elements of myself into one gigantic pot, and I hope you'll enjoy. We're going to talk a little bit about caregiver and care receiver. And this is both from a very personal perspective. Um, I'm lucky enough to be the father of two children who are, spent some time in hospitalization. My oldest son was a 26-week preemie. Uh, Nowadays, he is 17 years old, and he is no longer one pound 15 ounces. Uh, Rumor has it that he's taller than I am, but I don't like to talk about that publicly. And he's fine, he's going off to yeshiva, and thank God everything's very, very good with him. My younger son is somebody that we're gonna talk about a little bit today. At the same time, of course, as a chaplain, you have certain responsibilities as a chaplain, and we're going to inform the experiences that I've had with my military chaplaincy, and I'd like to suggest a certain approach that I wish would be taken uh, in hospitals today, which I believe that is sorely missing. And my story in general is written in our book. We've got a book called of Medicine, Miracles, and Mindsets. We've got copies here. i will be happy to sign. Um, and the book goes both through the entirety of our first four or five years or so with my, uh, with my youngest son. And at the end, we talk a little bit of some of the ideas that we talk about here, but here I, I'm not telling these stories as a story per se. Here I'm talking about it more in terms of the approach that I believe should be introduced into, or at least promulgated or pushed within the medical system today. So, getting back to our little intro here, what exactly caregivers and care receivers, by that we're talking about, of course, hospital patients or families. And with regards to care, that's care, care receivers. With regards to caregivers, of course, we're talking about, in general, hospital staff, but most specifically with regards to hospital social workers and uh, chaplains, and very broadly with regards to nurses and doctors. So why would caregivers and care receivers clash? So for that, I'm gonna tell you a little bit of a, a story of parents who, whose child was diagnosed in utero with complex congenital heart disease. The specific complications were pulmonary atresia, total anomalous pulmonary venous return, and single ventricle defect. So the practical meaning of all those things, if some of you are not uh, complex medical specialists, is that there's only half of a heart, and that the pathways between the heart and lungs are dysfunctional or actually completely defunct. So the question was immediately, as soon as they found these, this information, at 30 weeks, the question is, how long can this child survive? The question was, it was really a matter of hours, and even if possible, maybe we can get him into surgery. But that was a significant question with regards to what would be the the totality of it. The family did speak to a neonatologist, and the purpose of speaking to the neonatologist was to try to find an advocate and to try to find some kind of way to be able to get to a surgery that would be able to repair these defects. But along with those three defects, there there was an assumption that based on what they were seeing on the scans, that there were several significant GI defects, and they weren't sure if it was, uh, come on, esophageal atresia or esophageal fistula. And because of the totality and the complete picture of, of the defects, the assumption was that this child could not live for more than several hours, and if the child did live for several hours, he would not be able to survive. So for the next nine weeks until the baby was born, the parents were asked at every single uh, OB visit whether they had planned the baby's funeral and and whether they had uh, any conversations with the Jewish Burial Society. Every single OB visit. Moving forward towards the actual birth When the baby was born, the baby did cry. So the parents understood that there was some kind of system going on between the heart and lungs. And over the next several hours, the neonatologist who was there removed the, um, the nasal prongs from the baby's face and told the parents that this baby will not survive to see sunset that night. The parents are just waiting. Sunset comes and goes, and the baby's busy chomping on a pacifier, and there are no issues particularly. Well, there are some issues. I mean, the baby's turning purple every so often. I guess that's technically speaking it's a problem. Um, And the parents would just massage the baby, and things would go on. That night, the baby's still alive. The parents are asking to see a cardiologist, and they're told that there is none to see you. They're asking, why are we not getting into surgery. This baby needs surgery. And they're saying, well, because Children's Hospital refused your case because it's too complex. So the parents said to the doctor, can you please go speak to Children's Hospital and find out if there is a surgeon who's willing to take a risk and do surgery on this child? And the answer was that the surgeons there basically refused the case. This went on for four days baby was born monday tuesday wednesday thursday the family finally left the hospital forced into hospice care and they were forced into hospice care they were told that that if you don't sign into hospice care there will, there will be a uh, a police investigation on you they went home friday morning they woke up the baby was still alive the father had a little feeling that maybe we should start calling other hospitals other doctors called Children's Hospital and Children's Hospital's cardiologist that had diagnosed them in the first place said, we were told that you refused surgical care. We've been waiting for you. As soon as the baby was born, he was on what they call the stork list. How quickly can you get here? The family said, give us five minutes. They said, we'll make it 45 so that way you can pack up because the baby's going into surgery tonight. That baby is now six and a half. Now, he is still a complex kid. He is now post-Fontaine, so he's been through 10 or 11 surgeries, I don't know. He just had actually surgery three weeks ago um, on his legs. He has cerebral palsy as a result of not those first five days, but as a result of the BT shunt that they put, that was the first surgery that they did. It clotted when he was almost a month old, and um, they they, uh, operated on his legs to be able to free up some of the muscles there to be able to get him towards walking. He's not here today, because if he was, I would not be able to speak today, because he would take over this stage. (laughs) Uh, The kid is, is, he's a total riot, and as you can tell from that smile, basically everything's an absolute joke, and he loves microphones, and there's just no way that I'd be able to, to get up and tell the story. But this is our story, and it introduced us into several major, major gaps within the the medical world that I believe should be addressed. And as an Air Force chaplain, I have a belief that the way we do chaplaincy in the military can influence and possibly alleviate some of the problems that occurred in our case. There are many, many problems that happened in our case, and we're gonna go through some some of them together. But if there had been a person who is responsible to be able to mediate, and to be able to have conversations with us, and to be able to have intelligent conversations, I believe that would have alleviated in our situation, and having told this story many, many times over, I believe that kind of position would assist in many other people's medical journeys. So. Just to go through things, first of all, let's look at what military chaplains are. Now, usually people say, you know, military chaplains, they pray and that kind of thing, and, and uh, that's true. You know, here I'm giving a, an invocation for one of my friends who had just pinned on major. My brother's a hospital chaplain, and oftentimes when he walks into patients' rooms, he, he has to reassure them because their major responses chaplain, is it that bad? And he says, no, 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 I'm just here to talk. <laughs> you know, we're not here to give you last rites. So that's, that's an important thing. Yeah, so yes, we do pray, but that's not the reason why the government pays us, so to speak. And that actually would be against the Constitution to be, have an officer whose job is simply to pray. So yes, there is that element of what chaplains do, but it's gotta be much, much greater than that. And with regards to that, there are three general um, responsibilities of every single chaplain and those three responsibilities are, first of all, religious accommodation. And that's something that hospital chaplains do, that's something that social workers do. When you have somebody who comes from a different culture and they need specific needs, they have specific needs that cannot be met in your typical ward, they need kosher food or whatever it is, so they come to a chaplain. My, when my, young, my oldest son was born, like I said, he was a 26-weeker. One of the nurses came in at some point, and I was sleeping on the couch. And I heard the nurse come in, and she says, you know, we do have a, uh, access to a rabbi who lives nearby, and, you know, they can assist you if you need. And I said, that's me. <laughs> she said, what? I said, yeah, that's, that's if you call that number, my cell would, would ring. <laughs> So religious accommodation, obviously, if somebody needs kosher. You know, a Muslim needs halal. Uh, you know, all that kind of thing. Those those are the basics. But religious accommodation gets much deeper than that in the military, of course, because there are very specific rules and parameters with how the military works. And so every time there's something that interferes with the way the military wants to run something, the chaplains are part of that process to be able to find to to present it to command to be able to get permission for whatever's needed. And that's a lot of what we do. A lot of what I do in my civilian work is is help people. In fact, I owe a Marine a memo today, which hopefully I'll remind myself to do after this this class. She called me yesterday. She said she wants to keep kosher. There are extra funds available for those people who cannot uh, eat at the typical dining facility. It's called either Comrades or BAS, and she wants to apply for it. I said, absolutely, that kind of thing. That's a pleasure to be able to help a Jewish Marine keep kosher. So that's religious accommodation. It happens in the hospitals. If somebody needs something, they're going to be able to get it. That's not a problem. Shabbos passes. You know, little candles that they give out—not real candles, but you know, little electric candles. That's 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 not a problem. Social workers—they know what they're doing with regards to that. Morale, though, is an interesting one. We are officers of morale, so what we do in the military is we go around talking to people, and this is fantastic. I was at my previous base, Maxwell Air Force Base, which is a really boring base. There's not much going on there at all. It's, a, it's, a, it's basically a university campus, but it has a runway, and it has a couple very old C-130 Hercules sitting on the, the, uh, on the tarmac. Well, one day there's a couple F-16s sitting there, and obviously, you know, I mean... Well, that's why we join right go check out the the really cool planes so i said to one of my fellow chaplains i said i think air traffic control needs a visitation from us so we went over to aircraft traffic, traffic control we spent the next two hours talking with them hanging out until one of the f-16s took off and it's actually a fantastic sight to see an f-16 take off from inside the air traffic control that's a visitation. You're checking out their morale. You're spending time with them. You're trying to energize them to make sure that they have the ability to be able to do what they do because obviously in the military, it's, a very, it's an intense place to be and there's, there's very high expectations. I don't know how much that's considered in hospitals. I don't know how much people are going around checking with the nurses or checking with the doctors and having conversations because the big difference between us and any other position in the military, is we have 100% confidentiality. So anybody can talk to me knowing that they will not be informed upon to their command. There's a lot of things that happen in hospitals that I don't know about that nurses might be feeling very, very upset about. in fact, I know that behind the, the scenes in our situation, there were a lot of people who were extremely upset by the way that we were being treated. I only know that because there was a nurse who quit. She wasn't actually one of our nurses. She just heard what was being spoken about in the, uh, obviously in the break room. She heard the conversations. She knew that we were being blocked from getting care. She did give us a pacifier at some point because the University of Washington Hospital is a, uh, is a. breast care, breastfeeding certified hospital, and as a result of that, you're not allowed to have pacifiers in the labor and delivery ward. And they had given my wife medicine to stop her milk from coming in, so the only way to be able to get a pacifier was to sneak one in (laughs) past the guard. So this nurse actually, we found out later that she she was the one who got us a pacifier when we obviously wanted to give the baby something to do because they weren't feeding him that, that first day. So the reason why she quit, she left a very good hospital, and she went to the situation of not knowing what was going to happen next was because of a, basically, fo- fatal dose of, of destruction of morale. But the irony is you need nurses who have that kind of care and concern. So even though she quit, and obviously... We feel gratified that or validated by her feelings. But at the same time, if she had spoken to me, I would say, don't quit because we need somebody like you here. We need people who do have the, the personal strength to stand up. So morale is an important part of the conversation. And then the third element, which I know does not exist, and that is advising command. That's not something that we typically do because, you know, usually... We're not dealing with this kind of situation. But chaplains are officers. We're responsible for giving advice to command with regards to ethics and morals. Commanders basically have two advisors on their side. They've got a JAG, and judge advocate, who's a lawyer, who tells them what their legal responsibilities are, and then they've got a chaplain to tell them what, what their ethical responsibilities are. There's what you can do and what is correct to do. And with regards to personnel actions and all that kind of thing, there could be things that could be very uh, hurtful to a, an individual, but better for the command at large. Or you could have situations where obviously it's a matter of, in the military, it's a matter of killing people. The question is what is ethical, what is moral? And the, the chaplain's responsibility. The chaplain has no command authority. Our only authority is the fact that we are people of religion and we have, we've been trained in ethics and morals and so our our job is to present something to command and then the commander makes a choice i don't believe that doctors are trained to listen to a hospital chaplain at all i don't think that if in uh, in my situation if the hospital chaplain would have had a conversation with the neonatologist i don't think you even think that conversation would have gone more than uh, 30 seconds So, how does that happen? You know, I mentioned visitations, but I wanna to, want to take it a little bit further. I'm gonna introduce you to a little character, a person here. This is um, a, an army sniper. He's a Jewish soldier, and he told me this story three weeks ago. One of the things that we do for the Aleph Institute is we have a magazine called The Jewish American Warrior, and it's stories, information, perspectives presented to Jews in the military, written by Jews in the military. He wrote an article about two years ago, and more recently he made a comment, and I don't even remember where I saw the comment, whether it was on Facebook, I I don't even remember where, or somebody told me about it maybe, that the last chaplain who is killed in action a non-Jewish chaplain by the name of Dale Getz was his chaplain. So I reached out to him. I said, you know, it would be interesting to hear, did you have a relationship with him? He said, yeah, a very, very strong relationship. In fact, he influenced me to this day. I said, I'd like to hear about it. So this is the story that he told me. He said that he grew up, his name is Colton, he grew up in an observant family. He joined the army because of the fact that The army was at war, and he decided to go into infantry. Maybe it's not surprising, but a tremendous amount of the Jews in the US military are in the legal, the medical, or the military intelligence fields. That doesn't mean everybody's there. There are plenty of guys who who do other stuff. But there's not that many sitting in an army sniper position. And he said that he never had a single Jew in any of his battalions. And over time, even though he grew up observant, you just, you just slip off, and he said, hey, I just wanted to assimilate. This article is not published yet. It's going to be in the next issue of, of The Warrior. He just wanted, he, just, he was finished. He just wanted to be like one of the other guys. They went from Iraq, fighting in Iraq, came straight back to the United States, and they were told immediately that you're going to Fort Hood to get spun up to be sent to Afghanistan. And not just to Afghanistan. There's a region in Afghanistan that's known as the Devil's Playground. And that's the area of Afghanistan that's extremely, extremely difficult terrain and nobody has been able to conquer that going all the way back to the Mongols and all that. They had not even gotten off the helicopter to replace the battalion that they were replacing when they were already getting mortar rounds shot at them. The first day he was there they already had two casualties and they were just right there being rained on and they needed to respond. Chaplain Getz was with them. And again, Chaplain Getz is not a, he's not not allowed to pick up a weapon because we're non-combatants. He was going around to the entire battalion talking to every single one of them. And when, you know, pointing out targets, when somebody killed uh, an enemy combatant, he would talk to the soldier, make sure that he was doing okay. And when it came to Colton, he started telling him, hey, you're a Jew. You were born a Jew. And you have responsibilities as a Jew. What are you doing for your connection to your God, the way God created you? And Colton's like, well, whatever. You know, I kind of gave, gave that stuff up. And Chaplain Getz kept on kept coming back to him. Getz started getting him kosher rations, kosher MREs, which he didn't have, and started getting him whenever he could, and started pushing him, said, Hey. You got to get to high holidays; they're coming up, and I know that there's a services that's going to be in Kandahar. I'm going to take you personally to Kandahar to make sure that you can go to to go to Yom Kippur. Several days before they were going to go to Kandahar, uh, there was another unit in the general area that was suffering casualties, and Chaplain Getz and two others went out in a uh, an armored vehicle to go help those other guys. He said, I was on watch. He was basically providing overhead security for that truck when the truck hit an IED and blew up. He said there was nothing left. And all he could think of were the last words the chaplain gets told him again and again and again. God made you an observant Jew. God made you a Jew. It's your responsibility to serve God the way God made you. And he said he fought that Yom Kippur. He did not go to Kandar. He had to fight. He had to fight for his battalion. He said he had to fight for himself. He had to fight, most of all, for his chaplain. He said he drank as little as he possibly could just to keep himself dehydrated. But as Yom Kippur an ended, he find, found himself finding his Judaism again. And he said, today, I have a Jewish wife and two Jewish children and a Jewish life because of my Christian chaplain. So that story is just an unbelievable story on so many different levels. But I think one of the things that's absolutely crucial is that Chaplain Getz would not have been able to make that impact if he was not there at the scene of battle. If you are a chaplain who is not one of the guys, you don't have the cachet to be able to, to make that statement. You will not be able to impact people. So the concept of chaplaincy as it is right now, and my wife and I have been through six or seven hospitals, I don't remember how many, and so we've, we've met chaplains, and I cannot say that any of them were particularly memorable in a positive way. But the concept that chaplains, what they do right now is basically they go around, and they say hi, are you okay? Or hi, are you dead yet? And the answer is, you know, basically keep, keep moving. That's the approach, and that approach is not going to be able to solve the issues that we started out, the issues that can come up between a caregiver and care receiver. Because you can't mediate if you don't speak either's language. And you cannot mediate if you're not going to be able to talk to the doctor in his language because you've been with him or her, and you understand what they're going through, even though you're not a doctor. You're not going to be able to do that. I totally agree that this is not like a be-all, end-all. There's another story that I heard recently from a Christian chaplain. The Aleph Institute has a yearly uh, convention for, for Jews in the military, chaplains, and it's a training event. And there's a Jewish marine sergeant major who brought his chaplain along with, Chaplain Sundermeyer. And Chaplain Sundermeyer and I were talking at Shabbat. He's Christian. His first time spending any time uh, like this, and certainly in an Orthodox Jewish setting. And we got to talking at some point, and I don't even know how the conversation came up. But he told me the following story. Now, mind you, when I heard this story, I had known the results of the story from the news. So it's always interesting when you hear of somebody who was involved with it at the time, and they can tell you the full picture. He's a Navy chaplain, and he got to an island somewhere in the middle of the Pacific, and there was a submarine that was there, docked there for repairs. Immediately, he started getting consultations. People wanted to talk to them, and immediately off that submarine, there were several people who had suicidal ideations. And to have... Immediately, just like this flow of people who are thinking about committing suicide is, is evidence of something much deeper and much bigger. And realizing that this was something much deeper and much bigger, he decided that he wanted to go aboard the submarine and start talking to people. So he got permission from somebody, because you can't just walk anywhere you want, uh, especially onto a ship like that. He got Permission to go, and he started talking to people. And as he's talking to more and people aboard the ship, he realizes there's something very, very, very wrong aboard the ship. And he went to the captain, and the captain seems like he kept on missing him. He finally corners the captain and his executive officer right next to the captain's uh, berth, and he said, uh, "Chaplain, uh, excuse me. He said, Captain, you and I need to have a conversation." The captain's response was, chaplain, get off my ship. His response was, captain, we need to have a conversation whether you like it or not. Captain picked up his radio and asked for armed guards to escort him from the ship. To escort a chaplain off a ship with armed guards is basically that's kind of as low as you can possibly go. So the chaplain spoke to several people that he had had consultations with, and said, you need to put in an IG complaint and tell them what's going on. He said, by the time he left that island, the IG complaint, the IG was already on the island and and doing things. Within a week or two, I don't remember exactly how long the actual period was, the captain and his executive officer were relieved from command. What was going on? The captain had a rape list of all the women aboard the ship. And all the male submariners, submariners, were expected to vote on the women on a weekly basis. Which woman would you like to rape? And that was something that hit at people so badly and so deeply that decent naval submariners were thinking about committing suicide because of the pressure that they were put upon to do something like that. Now, part of the reason why I, th- I believe the chaplain, the captain basically said, chaplain, get off my ship, is because there was no relationship there whatsoever. And as the captain of the ship, he is the ultimate authority. He is God in his own eyes. And so therefore, there's nobody who can tell him what to do. This is what I feel like doing. This is what I'm going to do. And who the heck are you? They'd met, never met before. But again, in a hospital situation, if there is a relationship and the chaplains are trained to understand how to interact with doctors and get to know the doctors and stop by their offices and talk to them about their specialties and learn as much as they possibly can, I believe that would have a significant impact. I'm not a pilot, but when I speak to pilots, I try to learn as much as I can about their planes and about what they do. When they share things with me, That creates the relationship. We had a prayer service that we did on at MacDill for the shootings in in Los Angeles and in in Buffalo. And the commander of of the base and the deputy commander were both there. And I started talking to the commander, the deputy commander. And seeing that, of course, he has wings on his chest, I said, sir, what what planes do you fly? He said, the C-5. C-5 galaxy is the biggest plane in the American arsenal. It's this gigantic thing. I said, sir, can I correct that? Is that okay? He said, what do you mean? I said, when the C-5 flies, you fly it. Because these things have, and I don't remember the statistics, but they have like a 40% uh, mission readiness. That means for only 40% of the time they're actually capable of flying because they're just so complex and they break down all the time. And he cracked a big smile. He said, oh, you know about that. <laughs> And there was this immediate rapport. Now here's a guy who I really don't have very much to do with. I wouldn't go into his office at all, but because of that rapport, I believe he would be willing to listen to me because of that short conversation. Let's see. The next is the concept of mission. In the military, everything's about the mission. It's about accomplishing something that's, that's, that's bigger than yourself. What is the mission of a hospital? There's a fascinating term that the Rebbe took, the Lubavitcher Rebbe took from the modern Hebrew and flipped it. The term for a hospital in Hebrew is bet cholim. The Rebbe did not like that term at all, and he tried to encourage people to flip the word and call it bet refuah. Bet cholim means a place of the sick. Betrufuah means a place of healing. So you might say it's just semantics. Well, what does it make a difference. You call it one thing, you call it the other. Potato, potato. But I believe that what he's representing here is something much deeper, and it hints at, and it alludes to, the sense of mission that needs to be an essential part of what a hospital is. Is a hospital a place where people go to get sick and die? Or is the hospital a place where people go to gain healing? What's the approach? What's the the attitude? What is the mission of the hospital? And within those two, it really changes everything. I have not researched this completely, but I will say from my anecdotal evidence that today, hospitals are being run purely as a business, purely from the financial perspective and nothing more, nothing less. And the concept of healing does not apply anymore. You go into a doctor, you spend 15 minutes. Can a doctor truly see what's going on within a person within 15 minutes? The questions that you ask need to lead to other pieces of information, and not necessarily are you going to see those things on a piece of paper when there's a checklist, and you just go down the checklist and hit no every single time. Those pieces of information need to be found they need to be studied and each patient is a case and the question of the case is not is this person sick or not but how does this person particular person need to be healed that's a complete, the complete mind shift i believe with regards to how the medical world looks at itself and how a hospital should look at itself and i believe again this when you look at one thing it leads to the other a sense of mission leads to greater morale, leads to greater result, and then I believe that the financial aspects will follow right along. But that sense of mission is absolutely, absolutely critical. And that leads to the next piece, which is a classic statement. The Talmud says that doctors were permission, given permission to heal. Nitan reshut le The doctors were given permission by God to heal. The third Rebbe of Lubavitch, who lived in the mid-1800s, he added the bottom of the line not to cause pain with predictions. Nowadays we have a whole perspective on statistics. Statistics lead us to all sorts of pieces of information which are absolutely fascinating. But the mistake with regards to statistics is they never apply to an individual case while that case is ongoing. You never have any idea where that prediction will end up. And as our first cardiac surgeon said, he said, well, if there's a 99% fatality and a 1% chance at life, if this child lives, they're that's 100% life. If you would have been doing predictions, then it's a completely different conversation because predictions are, well, this is what we think will happen. I have PTSD with regards to that ring. That ring went off at 3 o'clock in the morning, and the doctor on the other line was telling me that my son was in cardiac arrest. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's, 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 that was the hospital's ring. I changed it soon afterwards, but I can still hear it. So anyway, so that's just on the side. The idea that you have statistics as part of the general case, that you need the statistics in order to be able to make a certain decision, is important with regards to what? It's important with regards to the methodology of healing. What will be the best method to be able to get the best results? That's the reason why you have statistics. It's one of my favorite little stories, and I quote it in my book. But after the Rebbe had a heart attack in 1977, at some point, there were doctors trying to convince him to uh, lessen his workload. And they said to him, they said, if you don't take care of yourself, there's a 25% chance of recurrence. Do you understand? And the Rebbe smiled and said, yes. And what you just said is that even if I don't take care of myself, there's a 75% chance that nothing will happen. (laughs) Because it's all the perspective on, you know, what are you focusing on? So with regards to the statistics, why are people not being taught that? Why are they not being taught that actually the approach to medicine is focus on the healing and all the information needs to lead us to that particular point? When you look at the information as the dictating information, then you're mixing up what your job is and what your job isn't. You are not a prognosticator you're a doctor. Your job is to heal. That's what your mission is. So it gets right back to that perspective. And there's also the element of doctors who are given permission by God to heal. So therefore, the quality of a physician is the fact that they're connected to God and they're connected to something else. And so therefore, they're trying to do their best because they realize that a human being is so much more complex than just this particular organ or that particular organ. And if they... Allow themselves into that space, they both can keep themselves going with regards to their own uh, personal morale, because you see horrible things as a doctor. You see death. I was talking to one surgeon, and he told me clearly, he says, I know there are patients that I killed. Straight up. But when your perspective is that your job is to be God's intrum- instrument, and you are able to move yourself out of the space of me first, and it's my decision, then a person can allow for greater things to happen. Call them miracles, call them whatever you want. But you need to be able to be open to that kind of space. The next conversation is Judaism's approach. And this is true of any particular um, society. And this is, again, where the chaplains have to come in to be able to talk to be able to be able to mediate, because they understand differences of, of culture. When my wife and I were talking to the social worker, and we tried to tell them that our job as parents is to protect this child, she was Jewish, but she had no idea anything about her tradition, and from her perspective, uh, we were just deluded, delusional parents who are kind of hoping, but basically they're clueless. The neonatologist that was dealing with our case was also Jewish, and his approach was definitely, well, you guys are benighted Orthodox Jews who certainly don't know what you're talking about. When you have somebody who's able to bridge that gap, and I believe that one of the reasons actually why they they looked at it that way was because of the fact that they're Jewish, so therefore their judgment was much more intense but certainly with regards to other cultures that, you know, we may not know anything about. And there are people coming from, to the United States from countries across the world. And when there's communication issues, who deals with that? And you see, when you're in the ICU, you see frustration every single day. You see the nurses frustrated, you see people frustrated, and sometimes it might be frustration for very, very good reason. We were talking with one of the nurses, and she got very upset because... because my wife made a joke, because they were reading through all of the uh, litany of, of drugs that my son was on after his cardiac arrest and after all the other things that he was going through. He had two IV poles with you know six uh, rows, or I can't remember how many it was, but basically it felt like dozens of medications that he was on at the time. And my wife, you know, after the, the pharmacist is going through all of the information, the, uh, my wife makes, makes a, a sarcastic comment. She said, "Oh, do we forget to tell you that we're anti-vaxxers?" And everybody started laughing. But there's this one woman who had not known us, and she starts cracking up. And we started talking to her. And after we explained to her, it was a joke. And after she says, "Yeah, it's very, very personal because there was somebody with uh, I don't remember what it was, whether it was measles or mumps or something like that. A, you know, a disease that's basically been eradicated years ago." And the child was not given his vaccinations, and now he's dying in the hospital in a different in different ward. And she said, "My nurses and my personnel are being threatened because of the fact that the parents made that that choice." So there are. I, I absolutely agree that there are choices that people make that threaten other people's wellness. But maybe that mediation can be made by, by a chaplain, by somebody who understands and how to cross cultures and how to deal with cultures or knows how to reach out to other cultures to be able to get advice from people within that culture to be able to bridge that gap. In our case, the question, of course, was the question of quality of life or of life itself. The Jewish approach is that every moment of life is of infinite value. And so it was our responsibility to be able to sustain life and give him whatever life he could and and whatever God decides is God's decision. That was looked at as delusional. And that was even looked at by some people as immoral. Who are you to allow the life of a vegetable? But that's not our approach. And I tried to have this conversation. I tried to explain to them that life is so essential to Judaism that we even refer to a cemetery as Bet the house of life. We call death, we call it life after life. Life is what it all is all about, because everything is not about the physical body, it's about a soul. And that's everlasting, and that's, that keeps going. But again, these the concepts, these spiritual ideas that, that, to me, then motivate me and energize me, to them, this is basically, this is, that's complete nonsense. This kind of situation should, be, should have been mediated. And then we have the whole conversation about hope. Providing false hope, is that okay, or is that not okay? Miracles, are you allowed to tell people that we're hoping for a miracle? Are you allowed to mention that? Is that okay? Reality, what is reality? From a Jewish perspective, miracles are basically, there are miracles that we see every single day, but we just don't realize what they are. A miracle is God working within the system to achieve a result that God wants. So you have miracles that are vested within nature that we just simply don't know that exist. And there are miracles that are certainly beyond nature, the fact that my son's anatomy worked as well as it did for four days with no, or five days with, with no medical intervention whatsoever. single ventricle and no pulmonary cardio system. I think you speak to anybody, they'll say that this is not really something that's feasible. He had, just to add a little piece of that, he had a, uh, the PDA, patent ductus arteriosus, was open during that time. And I said to one of the surgeons, I said, I said well, that's how he was able to breathe through that, that PDA, which is a hole between the heart and lungs, and usually closes immediately after birth. But it stayed open till, till Friday afternoon once he got onto the IV. And the surgeon, who was not Jewish, who was actually Indian, from India, he kind of looked at me, he goes, yeah, yeah. I said, what, that wasn't a miracle? He says, no, you don't understand. He says, the PDA is too small to allow for proper pulmonary flow for five days. He said, your son had oxygen saturations basically wavering between the 60s and the 80s for those five days. He said, we have no idea how he did that. So what was so remarkable about that was I thought the miracle was one thing. He said, no, 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 you don't even realize how big the miracle is. So that was, the, that was the perspective. But the question, are you allowed to mention those things? Or do you immediately get shut down? Because no, we can't talk about that. That's not scientific. I believe that we should be able to talk about these things. And I think that hope is an incredibly important part of it. Because I believe that hope actually leads a person into a better healing space. That when a person is given the, the access to hope, and they're not just pushed into the grave, That's where you allow the possibility for healing. So hope actually leads to miracles. Now, I understand that you need to be able to create some kind of balance, and every circumstance is different. And for that, I just want to tell you two anecdotes that I was involved with. One in case I already knew the outcome, but the parents did not. And the other one was the outcome was expected to be extremely, extremely grim, and it ended up being... The first one was at the Parkland shootings. So as an Air Force chaplain living nearby, when I heard of the, cha- the shootings, I drove up to the area and they were keeping the parents who had lost their children, but they were not officially informed that their children had been lost. They were keeping them in a hotel, uh, for, ended up being for about six, eight hours, maybe even 10 hours uh, while they were doing the investigation. So I did what chaplains do, I walked around. You know, If somebody felt like they, were, they, need, they needed somebody to speak to, I'd speak to them and, and otherwise you know, try not to get into you know, Families are kind of huddling together and talking and I don't want to you know, throw yourself into that. At some point, one of my fellow rabbis called me over, he said this family is, is they need somebody. And the mom was, was really, really struggling. So again, I knew that they were there because their child had been killed. And so therefore, for me to create a sense of hope would be absolutely inappropriate. Because even though that's what she wanted, it's, it was already over. So I said to her, I said, all I can do is join you in silence. And I saw her stress drop that all I'm going to do is join with you in your pain in silence, and that's what she needed. The rabbi led a real little prayer. She wasn't Jewish. The rabbi led a little prayer, and we did a little prayer, but I could see that she needed to feel from somebody else, just somebody to join in her pain to help her carry that pain, and that was, that was my job there. So I'm not saying that to create a, a sense of hope that doesn't exist. And the other side of, was in the Surfside uh, tragedy, there was a little girl who was interviewed online and, and she was talking about her hope to be able to, uh, that her dad is somewhere. And at that point, it was still a day or two afterwards and there was, there was still hope. I knew the chance of that happening was, was beneath, as low as you could possibly be. But the last thing I'm going to do is to break her hope, because that's what's keeping her afloat right now. I'm not going to tell her to start preparing for a funeral. What kind of chutzpah is that? That was what was done to me for nine weeks before my child was born, and every single time, it took us several days to recover from that. So my approach to her was, I told her and her brother, I said, look, you guys, you guys have gone surfing, you're from Miami? Yeah, they've gone surfing. I said, well, ride the waves. There's ups and downs, the feelings go up and down, just ride those waves. That was the peace that I could give her. My approach was to join with her in her place and to give her something where she was. We're going to keep praying with you. We're going to keep hoping for the best. I'm not going to pretend something doesn't exist when it doesn't exist. But I'm not going to break her hope when that's what's keeping her afloat right now. Some chaplains, I believe, might do that. We certainly, like I said, did not... did not experience some of those things. One final piece that I want to talk about, interestingly enough, because of, my, uh, because of our experience, my mother-in-law became a hospital chaplain. She was there during our, our initial fights with the doctors, and she, she was motivated as a result of that, and she went through training to, join, uh, to become a, 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 a hospital chaplain. She asked me to give a talk like this to the team at Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, which is actually one of the top teams, uh, children's hospital teams in the, in the country. And I presented similar things to what I'm talking about you today. And one of the things, the final thing that I told them is that there needs to be a focus on what is practically needed There needs to be someone who's looking out, not for the hospital's benefit, but for this particular person. The care recipient needs to be able to have somebody who is on their side and making sure that they get what what they need. Several months ago, she called me and she said, I just want you to know that I had an opportunity to be able to apply that. I said, what happened? She said there was a woman in the ward that she was working in who had a very specific esophageal problem or, or GI problem. I don't know what the details were. But she had only been drinking Sprite for the past 24 hours. And the hospital that she was working at was not able to deal with this particular specialty, so they were planning on moving her over to another hospital. And as a result, you know, these things take while, You while, know, when you get an ambulance, the paperwork and all that. And as a result, she had not received any nutrition in over 24 hours. And my mother-in-law went to the doctor in charge and said, she has not received any nutrition. The doctor said, well, we're we're transferring her anyway. And my mother-in-law kind of got herself in front of the doctor and said, she has not received any nutrition. And Dr. Zemita's response was, it's not my problem, it's somebody else's problem. She said, well, somebody has to make sure that this woman gets her nutrition right now. Who can sign off on it? He said, well, I guess I can. She said, in that case, do it he said, oh, yeah, I guess I can do that. And he signed her, got an IV. But who is looking out for those people? It was one of the saddest things during the whole COVID experience was the fact that families were disconnected from their loved ones, and as a result, there was no advocacy. But in my belief, my very, very strong belief, is that if we reinsert the concept of care into the idea of a caregiver, and if we retrain the social workers, not to be people to hand out brochures and walk out to but to understand how to give care, how to provide care, how to go get personally with each individual, in my, in my strong belief that that would alleviate some of the problems, the clashes between caregiver and care recipient. Any questions? So the question about the captain on the submarine who, remo- who, is, uh, who removed the chaplain from command, yes, he was, excuse me, who removed the chaplain from his submarine, yes, he was removed from command, uh, and they were, they were punished in some kind of way, and as far as I know, they were moved out of, out of the Navy. That kind of thing is, is, I mean, for a million reasons, that's not okay, um, and the Navy took that very, very seriously. It's, uh, that's a pretty complex question, um, but yes. Uh, you know, it, it really depended on the circumstances. But the one thing, if we divide it into two different pieces, the concept of 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 terminal and the concept of of one to two months, and that gets back into what we're talking about about predictions. Um, I think that that as soon as we start putting numbers, that's where we're starting to go astray, because we don't know what's going to happen. I, I mean, I told I told this doctor, I said you could walk out into the parking lot, get hit by a car. And die, you're 45 years old, and that's, that's that. We don't know, and the question is, what is the best healing circumstance? I do think there's a reason why this gets very complex, is because of the fact that, like you said, this doctor, this this surgery, does not sound like it's an actual healing surgery, because of the fact that, given the complexity of all the different pieces there, what you know what is going to be led to the next, is it going to allow healing into the future or not? And that's, that's certainly a, a very, very serious question that's, that, and that comes up. But I think that kind of dialogue is one that needs to be mediated by somebody who can understand the different perspectives and knows how to be able to present it to the patient so that the patient is able to understand the circumstances and, and make a better and more informed decision. So it, it is it is extremely complex because again I don't know the circumstances but when as soon as people start talking about a, a you know a, t- a time left that's where the mistake begins because you create finality where it doesn't need to be there and it might be true but we don't know you know we, we can say that given the current circumstances that that absolutely needs to be that conversation exactly what you just not You know, in, in many circumstances, I can't, you know, I, I, I try not to create a, a script because these kinds of things need to come very much from the heart to the heart of the person who's, who you're talking to. So you have to hear what that person is saying in order to be able to respond. It's very much in the moment, very, very, it's a very in the moment kind of situation, but it's very much that sensitivity towards the needs and why is this person asking for this? What, is, what does he see? And the question is, how do you present the information in such, a worse, in such a situation where the person realizes the, without letting go of the hope, but realizes the danger of the surgery? And that's, that's it's very much case specific. But I, I, I think that it's, it's, a, it's an excellent question that needs to be dealt with there. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and torahcafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.